Thank you. Um, my name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here, one of the pastors here at King's Cross Church. Again, thank you for uh, making the decision to join us this morning. There's so many things you could be doing on this l Sunday. I was going to uh, I always talk about the weather, but it's hot today, isn't it? It's been hot recently. Um, welcome. If you have a Bible, grab your Bible, whether it's like physical copy, which I actually prefer, or a digital device, don't matter what you use, but um, turn to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. And here comes Hayato, sitting right at the front. <laughs> I'll call you out, mate. Um, brilliant. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through to 20, verses 8 through to 20. And if you could stand for the reading of the word, that would be brill. Chapter 5, oh, you got it? Thanks, thanks Nick, thanks. All right, chapter 5, verses 8 through to 20. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and right, righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats, Little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall... Take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and in sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his, of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God." For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts 
are filled with so much. Our minds are busy and always wandering. But as we dedicate this time to wanting to hear from you through your word, God, I pray that you would give us minds and hearts that are attentive and you would give us a desire to obey all that you call us to. But God, this morning, as we've done and will continue to do to lift up the name of Jesus, uh, may Jesus become more and more delightful and satisfying for every single one of us. In his name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> it was the summer of 1997. I was a 14-year-old teenager. And like most teenagers, of course I had acne, lots of it. But like most teenagers, I had an identity crisis. Even though I lived in England and I had never been to America, I often wore oversized basketball jerseys, baggy jeans, and NFL hats and snapbacks. All this wasn't because I was a basketball or American football fan, but it was because I was obsessed with the hip-hop culture. Most of the hip-hop artists wore jerseys and hats of their favorite teams, so I figured I would do the same, even though I didn't know nothing about the teams they represented. One of my favorite musicians was the notorious B.I.G. <laughs> At that time, in 1997, when I was 14 years old, he had just released his new single, which was destined to be one of his greatest hits. The song was called More Money, More Problems, but he spelled it weirdly. It was more money, more problems. And the song was basically about how the more money we come across, the more problems we see. That's actually the chorus. There's a clip of the notorious B.I.G. in a song. Unfortunately, he had died um, I think several months um, before the song was released, and so he wasn't actually in a video, but there's a clip of him in a, a music video um, in the midst of, you know, P. Diddy and Mace wearing glittery outfits and dancing and everything. But there's a part where um, the Notorious B.I.G., they're interviewing him, and he talks about how, you know, when he became successful and started to make a lot of money, um, he started to experience more problems. There was a lot of people that was, were envious, and it just frustrated him being as rich as he was. His experience and perspective of money was 
And it's definitely countercultural. Why is that? Because most of the people in our culture truly believe that having more money will make you more happier. That's why most people work multiple jobs. That's why motivational videos on YouTube about how to make more money have millions of views. And that's why books on how to become rich, uh, most of them are bestsellers. We are obsessed with money because we believe money will make us happier. That's what our culture thinks. And so the question is, what about you? Um, what's your opinion? Do you believe that having more money in your checking and savings account will make you happier? Will more money improve your life? You might think, absolutely. If I had more money, I'd get a better car. If I had more money, I'd have a bigger house and more space, right? Living in San Diego, we all understand that. Um, if I had more money, I'd be able to do this and that and travel whenever I want. And so, what is your opinion? Do you believe winning the lottery will improve your life and bring you lasting fulfillment? Our culture may believe money is where lasting fulfillment is found, but the preacher, the preacher, is who's the, he's the author of Ecclesiastes, so throughout this sermon, I'm going to be referring to the preacher, and whenever I do, he's the author of Ecclesiastes, and the preacher will disagree with you. He'll push back and say that money does this. It over-promises but it actually under-delivers. The point he's been trying to make in this book of Ecclesiastes is that everything in this world is hevel. Hevel is a Hebrew word that means vapor or mist, right? And we translate it as vanity or meaningless. So the point the preacher wants us to really wrestle with and understand is that everything in this world under the sun, everything we're involved in is actually hevel, is actually vanity, is actually meaningless. It's actually, as he illustrates it, it's like chasing after the wind. In this section, the preacher, who's the brainchild behind this book, wants to help us see that living for money is meaningless. And he gives us several reasons why. And so if you're making notes, <clears throat> first, living for money is meaningless because you'll always want more. You'll always want more. Look at verse 10. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth will with his income. This also is vanity. And so, uh, after, in verses 8 and 9, after talking about the injustice that people suffer from the sinful structures of society and how government leaders use their position of power to make more money, the preacher um, transitions to talking about money. 
First of all, um, if you notice, look at verse 10 again. Look down at it. You'll notice that it says, he who loves money. Okay? Um, This means that he's talking about the person um, who loves money and is obsessed with making money. Okay? He's talking about the person who truly believes that money is what will bring them ultimate satisfaction. If you love money, if you dedicate your life to making money, if you pursue a certain salary, chances are when you achieve your goals, you will not be satisfied. You will never have enough. You will always want more. And this is a stark reminder that, look, after you get that pay rise, after you meet your financial goals, um, this is reminding us that you will not be satisfied. Why? Because you always want more. The obsession with money can never be satisfied. And think about this. Think about this. Like, we know, right, there are so many really incredibly wealthy people out there. Incredibly wealthy, to the point where they don't have to work a single day of their life, okay? Incredibly wealthy, don't have to work a day in their life, but what are they doing? They're still waking up early in the morning um, and working really hard in order to make more money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The more I have, the more satisfied I'll be in life is one of the biggest lies we believe. Um, John D. Rockefeller um, was one of the richest men alive when he was alive, Um, but when someone asked him how much money was enough, he famously said, just a little bit more. We've just seen that um, if you're living for money, you'll always want more. Second, living for money is meaningless because you'll have more expenses. Okay? Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? First of all, um, you know, put your eyes on the phrase, they increase who eat them, okay? This phrase is talking about people who consume our wealth. So, what the first part of this verse is saying is that the more money you have, the more people come to help you spend it. More money comes with extra expenses, right? The government, Uncle Sam, will show up and tax you, okay? Soon as you make more money, you'll need to pay for an accountant and a lawyer, okay? And they're really expensive when they're dealing with more money, right? As soon as you make more money, right, you're going to get relatives who have legit needs that you're going to want to meet, okay? When you make more money, you will have more expenses. Austin Duncan, who was a professor of mine at seminary, says the expenses increase. You have to have more people on your team. 
you have to have someone who will manage all this money for you. The months your feet, um, the mouths you're feeding exponentially increase because they're all requiring something from you. Okay? How many stories have we heard of the really athletic kid who gets signed, all right, gets a lucrative contract, and then what happens? He, he just talk about all of a sudden. Like, so many people are coming out of nowhere, <laughs> right, um, asking them for money. And so, the more money you have, the more expenses you have. The more you have, the more it will cost you, all right? So, number three, third, living for money is meaningless because you will not sleep well, okay? Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep, right? <laughs> it's incredible. Basic wisdom. Think. Sleep is one of the most valuable needs for humans, okay? Um, but a recent study um, survey revealed that an estimated 164 million Americans struggled to get a good night's sleep at least once a week. Okay, because of this, Americans spend billions every year on sleeping aids and remedies. Okay, we all know that the facts are there. Um, editor of Consumer Reports, Lisa Jill, says the reason many Americans struggle to get a good night's sleep is because they are busier than ever. She goes on to say. We can see that about 20% of Americans work 60 hours or more a week. We can also see they're spending more time on their gadgets, on their phones, trying to help their kids do good, um, to do homework. And so in verse 12, um, so that's the reason. That's a reason for why people don't sleep well. In verse 12, we're given another reason why some people struggle to sleep, and that is because they're too wealthy. <laughs> they have too much money. Um, this verse is telling us that the average worker, okay, think about it, the average worker who's on a minimum wage tends to sleep better than the multimillionaire. So, in other words, right, for example, the landscape or the construction worker or the day laborer or the waiter or whoever, the cleaner or nanny, will probably sleep better than the millionaire who lives in his million-dollar home, right, sleeps on his luxury bed, right, that comes with a high-end mattress, silk sheets, memory foam, all of that, everything designed to get him the most optimum sleep, right? Someone who just works a simple job will probably sleep better than him. Refreshing sleep is the blessing of manual labor, but the lifestyle of the rich is often not very restful. Yeah? Um, Sidney Gray Danos says this, The common worker will sleep well regardless of how much he has because he is content with what he has. His work tires him, it gives him what he needs, and it gives him good rest. In contrast, the wealth of the rich will not allow them to sleep. 
The rich person's appetite for more and more never allows them to rest or to enjoy what they have. They constantly think about the next business deal or the leeches that will take from them. They fret about an investment that might go bad or they lie awake worrying about a recession. All right? Number four. Living for money is meaningless because you'll never be truly secure. Look at verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. In these two verses, what's happening is the preacher tells a story of a wealthy man who ended up losing all of his money through a bad venture. The verse doesn't tell us exactly how he lost his money. It simply says that he lost it in a bad venture, right? It could have been an economic recession. It could have been a um, bad business move, pyramid schemes, gambling. doesn't tell us, but what it does tell us is that he lost all of his money. And to make matters worse for the man, he was father of a son, and because he lost everything, he had no inheritance to leave for his son. Also notice in verse 13 that the preacher tells the story and he describes the situation as a grievous evil, all right? Grievous evil. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Okay, Philip Riken, who's an author, says this. This literally means that it makes him sick even to think about it. All right, this whole idea of a man losing all of his assets. And so, money has limitations. Money can get you the best insurance and accountants and lawyers, but money cannot prevent you from losing it all. You'll never be truly secure. Money will never, be, um, will never be your security. And so the question I want us to wrestle with now is, have you been looking to money for your ultimate security? Do you have more faith in your savings and investments than in your savior if you're a Christian? It's absolutely wise and proper to save and invest your money, right? Um, all of those things are good, but saving and investments become a problem when your security and hope is in them more than in Jesus. And so... The question then we have to ask is, how generous are you with your money? How generous are you with your money? Um, do you save more than you give, or do you give more than you save? Right? Kevin DeYoung, um, who's an author, says this, God gives you money because he is generous, but he is generous with you so that you can be generous with others. And if you are generous with your money, God will likely be more generous with you. This teaching about money not being 
secure and, and this teaching about being generous um, aligns and it's in harmony with Jesus' teaching on money. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, if you are a Christian, it's incredibly important to have more faith, more faith in your finances, and more, sorry, more faith in Jesus, sorry, than in your finances. This mic is irritating me, it's in my face. <laughs> um, sorry about that, guys. Um, next, fifth, money is meaningless because you'll leave it all behind. Look at verse 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry it away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? In other words, we brought nothing in this world and we will lose everything when we die. Okay? Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who is one of the most successful Christian missionaries in history, said something similar. In a letter he wrote to his protege, Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 6, 7, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, right? If you don't lose all of your money through bad investments or a financial crisis, you'll definitely lose it when you die. Right? It's true. Everything you work for will be taken from you and given to someone else when you die, right? In 2011, Steve Jobs passed away at the age of 56 years old after battling a rare form of pancreatic cancer. He was buried in an unmarked grave located at the Outer Mesa Memorial Park, Palo Alto, California. Steve Jobs had a network, a net worth of 10.2 billion when he died. And so the question is, how much did he take with him when he died? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. And so the preacher concludes his talk about the meaningless pursuit of money in the following way. Look at verse 17. He says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So the big question is, what he's answering here is the outcome of the love of money. If you live for money you will live under a dark cloud and be consumed with frustrations, discouragements, and anger. Trying to find satisfaction in money and possessions is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. Um, Daniel Aiken um, says this, death is the great equalizer. It cancels out all the earnings we have why kill yourself to gain more money, more stuff, and more land when you are just going to be shoved into a hole in the ground at the end and eaten by worms? He said it. 
And so living for money is meaningless. Why? Because you'll always want more. You'll spend, you'll spend more. On, um, you will not sleep well. You will never be truly secure. And you will leave it all behind. And so the question is, how do we respond to these people? What do we do? Do we give up on our career path that we've been working hard towards? Do we quit our well-paid jobs and get really simple <laughs> jobs so we can sleep better? Do we stop saving and investing? Do we email our financial advisor and let them know that we no longer need their services? If money is meaningless, if we're going to lose all of our money anyway, do we not save or invest our money before you stop saving, before you stop investing, the preacher who's the author of Ecclesiastes has a solution for you. What he does next after, you know, after, you know, the criticism of the love of money and everything is incredibly balanced and wise. Look at verse 18. He says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And so, after talking about the grievous evil that is the love of money, what does he talk about next? He describes, all right, he decides to talk about what he believes is good and fitting. And what he believes is good and fitting is to be content with whatever you have. This is exactly the point he's trying to make in verse 18. He's, in, he's, he's doing this. He's urging you to be satisfied with what you have rather than thinking satisfaction will be found in what you don't have. And so the thing we have to think about and really begin to embrace is to delight in what you have, because trying to find satisfaction in a new job, in a new house, in a new car, um, in a new relationship, he's telling us it's all meaningless, and it's like chasing after the wind. It's a frustrating pursuit and an impossible endeavor to look to money to provide us with ultimate satisfaction and ultimate security. And so before he concludes, the preacher has more to say. He wants to like unpack this whole topic of contentment a little bit more. And what he does in verse 19 is fantastic. He unveils a vital truth about our wealth and possessions and the enjoyment of them. All right, this bit is fantastic. Look at verse 19. It says, everyone 
also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift from God. A lot of you are like, this is wonky. What does it all mean? All right, to put it another way, this is what he's saying, okay? God is the one that has given you everything you own. Who agrees with that? Right? We all agree with that. That's simple. God is the one. Everything you have, every good thing you have, God is the one that has given it to you. But here he's also saying that God is also the one that gives you the ability to enjoy every good thing you have. Simply put, both having things... And enjoying things are gifts from God. Philip Riken unpacks this a little bit for us. He says, earlier the preacher listed some of the many reasons why accumulating money is vanity. Yet here he tells us explicitly that if we are wealthy, we should enjoy it. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but notice where the power of enjoyment comes from. It comes from God. God is the one who makes it possible for you to enjoy the things you enjoy. And this vital truth, this profound insight is what helps us have this balanced view of our earthly possessions, all right? God created the world. We all know that. And God did this. He filled the world with many good gifts that give us pleasure, but the ability to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves, the ability to enjoy wealth or family or friendship or food or work or sex or any other good gift comes only from God, the giver of those good gifts. If you want to be satisfied in life, be satisfied in God, the author of life. If you want to be satisfied with the good things in life, be satisfied in the God, the creator of every good and perfect gift. The source of joy is not found in the gifts, but in the giver of the gift. You can only fully enjoy what you have when your ultimate joy is found in the God who gave you what you have. And so rather than always craving more, this is what we're invited to do. We're invited to be happy with less because we are satisfied with God. This section of Ecclesiastes is not calling us to austerity, but it's reminding us of basic principles that are true. And that is, if you trust money to do what only God can do, you'll be left bitterly 
disappointed. And so this section of Ecclesiastes is a reminder not to look to wealth and possessions for true and lasting satisfaction, but to instead reach out for the cross where Jesus gave his life for all of our greedy sins to hold on to Jesus to find true and lasting satisfaction in him. And so instead of trying to find satisfaction in, um, um, in security, in money, this is what this passage is calling us to. It's calling us to find our ultimate satisfaction and security in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy. You are amazing. You truly are. And so, God, as we've taken a look at money and how if we love and are obsessed and live for money and look to it to satisfy um, us, we will be disappointed. But, God, we are incredibly thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us so that we can find true contentment and satisfaction in you. And in his name we pray. Amen.